0: Everyone and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the married and horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Bonjour, je m'appelle Andrea Subisati, and uh, we wish everyone a joyeux Noel, um, a, a bon New Year,
1: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
0: and you know what? We're not going to do the rest of the podcast uh, in this broken franglais Thank because. God. Uh, we respect this film and the filmmakers and the French language. Yep. Uh, too much to do that. So <laughs> we are here uh, for our annual holiday-ish episode uh-huh. of the Faculty of Horror. And today we're talking about a really creepy movie. Yes, Very creepy movie. A very gory, disgusting movie. Mm-hmm. And one that haunts me for like a while each time I see it. And that is... Inside or a l'intérieur.
2: 2007, Julien Maury and Alexandre Bustillot. I think this was the first film that I saw of the new French extremity which is perhaps appropriate because this was kind of the big kickoff, was it not? Well, I think, you know,
0: there are a few different kickoffs you can look at. I mean, the first one I probably saw was High Tension oh. um, shortly after it came out, and then I kind of forgot about that one a bit, and then I went to a local video store here in Toronto, mm. and I was chatting with the guy and uh, who was working there, and he recommended Martyrs. Was it Suspect? No, it was Eyesore. Okay, okay. And they, uh, so he recommended Martyrs to me. I went home, I watched Martyrs, it fucked me up, and then I went back the next week to return it, Uh and I said, what else? Yeah, yeah. And then he was like, oh, well then you must see inside. Uh
1: Uh-huh, okay. And I was like,
2: inside of what? (laughs) And he was like, no, inside. Get it? Get it. And uh, perhaps that wasn't terribly confusing, but I hope you all weren't too confused about the... Remake to this film, which is currently on Netflix. I was a hair away from tweeting, Hey, Faculty of Horror listeners, Inside is on Netflix, so watch that for your homework. I think we did shout out Beatrice Dahl pretty
0: intensely in the uh, pitch last episode. Okay, so I think so. <laughs> hopefully you got that. Um, and I did not watch the remake. Me neither. I thought about it. Mm. And then I got creepy, weird feelings after watching the original, and I wanted to sit in those. So here we are. Right. We are talking about this film, which, um, you know, premiered, it's North American premiere at TIFF Mm in uh, 2007. Um, It was a huge moment, I think, in this new French extremity movement because, again, it was, as Andrea was alluding to, it solidified a lot of what was going on with this movement. And I think it does a lot of things very well. A lot of them we're going to talk about. But it really marries so many horror tropes
1: Mm -hmm. with
0: a political backdrop. Yeah. And to me, that's really the ethos of New French extremity. And that's what separates it from something like torture porn Mm -hmm. or um, another kind of version of extremity. uh, Because France is going through some shit. France has always been going through some shit. Mm -hmm. They're not a a, a quiet nor a delicate people, shall Mm -hmm. we say. Uh, They love a protest. They have to riot for their rights. There's a lot of things going on and a lot of issues, and I think Inside gives us a really interesting opportunity to talk not only about womanhood
2: and motherhood, but the political backdrop, which it's set against. Yes, indeed. So let's get to it. Let's get Inside. A L'Intérieur.
0: Four months after a car accident that killed her husband, a heavily pregnant Sarah is determined to spend Christmas Eve on her own. A strange woman appears at Sarah's doorstep who seems to know a whole lot about her. Later that night, the woman breaks into Sarah's house attacking her and trying to claim her unborn child. In the process, this woman manages to kill Sarah's mother, her boss, and the police who stop in to check on Sarah. The woman reveals she was in the other car in the accident, and the child she was carrying died as a result. She wants Sarah's child as Sarah took hers, um, and as Sarah is in labor, the woman performs a crude C-section in order to save the baby, which kills Sarah. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the bare bones of it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's also um, a lot of stuff going on in the background that I think we can talk about a bit that has to do with the riots. Right. And the riots are going on, um, you know, they mention it off the top of the film when the, when the boss, Jean-Pierre, is talking to her, mm-hmm. um, you know, saying that, oh, I'm so désolé that my best photographer is out of commission with being heavily pregnant and can't cover the riots that are yes. going on. very inconvenient. Poorly timed conception, really. Ugh. And then, again, the police who stop in to check on her, they're, they're of course, going to check in on this poor white woman Mm -hmm. in her nice house. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they also have to attend to the riots that are
2: going on in the suburbs of Paris. So inconvenient. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I have not seen Livid or Among the Living. I haven't seen anything else from Maury and Bustio as a pair except for Leatherface.
1: Mm. from
2: 2017, which they directed. Did you see that? I did. I did not like it. I had some big problems with the story, but it was gory. And I was checking out the special features of... I had Alain Terrier on DVD, and I was uh, the only special feature is a making of featurette. And it was kind of shoddy. Uh, I was kind of confused by it because they didn't identify the speakers, so I had to kind of Extrapolate. Oh, I guess this is the editor. I guess mm-hmm. this is the cinematographer. But really, these guys seemed really green. Like mm-hmm. they were young when they made this, and they. It seemed like their focus was kind of the gore, the special effects. What it was that they were able to achieve um, that was very uh, visceral, and it's a great achievement in terms of in terms of the gore and the the special effects just blow my mind every single mm-hmm. time, and even seeing the behind-the-scenes thing, stuff that I wouldn't conceive of as special effects. I was like, oh, shit, that was actually really hard because they did such a great job of it. Now, I did consult your book. Alex. What? In looking back on this film, I took a quick look and... Your book had a quote from Bustillo saying that he was inspired by pregnant friends, mm-hmm. but I had read elsewhere that the directors wanted to subvert the slasher trope of men hunting women down, mm-hmm. and I have a quote that we wondered, what was the motivation for a woman to hunt another woman? And there it is listeners, if you've been listening to the podcast for a long time, you know that Alex and I have feelings about when everything female boils down to reproductive ability or disability.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's a good time to say or remind anyone um, that neither Andrea nor I have kids. We have never been pregnant, to our knowledge. Um, so there is, you know, a facet of womanhood that we have not experienced, mm-hmm. um, so we acknowledge that, mm-hmm. and we think motherhood is great, and we think it 's you know you can respect it, but you can also have a really fulfilling life as a woman and not have had a child mm-hmm. or have been pregnant or have been pregnant and not carried it to term, so it is one of those tricky things that um you know, to to center this kind of dialogue around um two women, two really strong female characters uh-huh. fucking going head to head mm-hmm. and it all boils down to a baby mm-hmm. it it can feel a little reductive, but the fact I think that this film clips along at a nice 82 minutes. Uh There's so much stuff going on. There's so much this film is saying, again, with the political backdrop that I tend to overlook that. Um, Although we will be talking about womanhood and the fact that Sarah is about to give birth on the eve
2: of Christmas. Right. That can't be a coincidence. And I don't think they're thoughtless filmmakers. I think they're young and I think, I I agree, I think that's, that's, you know, it's an aspect of femininity. It is not the End all and be all, but uh, but that's okay. Because at least, at the very least, this film takes it in very interesting places. And even if they weren't entirely planned and plotted that way by these filmmakers, I took a lot from it.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things I like about what this film does is Sarah is almost a reluctant mother. Almost, yeah. I, I read her
2: errors very much. A okay, it, I was, yeah. yeah, she's very reluctant. I,
0: I just, <laughs> I, I'm a little scared of, you know, people who get very. Amped up about motherhood because uh, some, some people get really amped up. Uh, she, she seems so disinterested mm-hmm. in this baby. And again, the film opens with this CGI um, creation of a child, uh, <laughs> like this baby in a womb that you see baby cam. Uh, baby cam. And uh, you feel the accident and the impact that it creates on the child, and the child is bleeding, mm-hmm. and it all kind of cuts away. And initially, you assume that it is Sarah's child and yes. that there was maybe trauma that it was okay. Uh But the fact that it focuses so deeply on the child right from the beginning, I think that's because both women desire a child. Uh Um, You know, Sarah may have wanted this child with her husband, and now that the husband's gone, it's it's more of a burden or uh, perhaps a reminder of the
2: pain she feels that she lost her partner. Oh, totally. And I think that's fair. I mean, again, I am childless, but I have a small dog, and I just spent a week in Mexico, and Dante I had a dad. You know, I think it's really fair to want to embark on something, on that kind of responsibility with another person. Mm-hmm. And when that other person is suddenly out of the picture for one reason or another, it changes things.
1: Absolutely. And I
2: think there's a huge taboo against, you know, women not wanting their pregnancy. So so that was courageous from the get-go to depict that the way it did.
0: Yeah, and I and I think you feel those effects and I and I think this film, whether you think of it as Christmas movie or not, I tend to. One of the ways it really invokes Christmas is the need for everyone to feel like they need to be around Sarah. Right. Not only is she about to, you know, give birth or or be induced the next day, mm-hmm. but everyone is very concerned about her. Her mother, who she seems like short of giving the finger to, mm-hmm. uh, seems like a very nice woman. Her boss slash maybe love interest, mm-hmm. um, they they all stop in to check on her. The police are like, there is a pregnant woman and we should go check on yeah. her. Um, the, it alerts people to her presence. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there is a, a lot of concern and a lot of worry that goes around pregnancy because mm-hmm. that is the next generation. It is the next Child okay. that is going to enter the world, and you want to make sure it's safe, and you want to make sure the person is cared for. And I think this film is a really interesting metaphor towards um, the notion of pregnancy, and then what happens when the child is outside the woman's body. And,
2: mm. You know, it changes everything. It changes
0: it? everything. And I've had friends who've had kids, and you know, they they can feel like so much love for their children, so much mm-hmm. deep, unbridled love for their child, mm-hmm. but they also we, and this is what they've said to me. They've lost a bit of themselves really? because, you know, they fo- have to focus so much on this child. Right. And then when people come to see them or people go do something with them, it's like, how is your kid? What does the kid want to do? What do they need? Right. Rarely do they ask what the mother needs. Uh-huh. Not always. And, um... Yeah, so I thought it was a very interesting thing. You know, when you look at the kind of arc of this film, that Sarah is this vessel for a child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's fucking laid out like a flattened chicken at the end of it. But the baby has survived. Mm -hmm. And there is some kind of sense of righting a wrong Mm -hmm. at the end of the film. That
2: a mother has gotten the child she wanted and the mother who maybe didn't want the child... I read it that way too. I was almost scared to ask you about it because I was like, am I sick for finding this a happy ending? The best possible ending? Hey, that's what I fucking ended my chapter on. The fact that there is a right, there is a wrong that has been righted. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't think Sarah wanted to die. I don't think she deserved to die. But I think as far as the situation went...
0: There, it, it's very perverse. It's yeah. it's very complicated. It's super murky. Again, I don't think Sarah should have done I don't mm-hmm. think any like you know, but it's we got to see Sarah's version of the trauma.
1: Mm-hmm. We did
0: not get to see the woman's version of the trauma. And I think the film does a really interesting inversion where, in the last moments of the film, when she reveals who she actually is, the uh-huh. she's like, "You already killed me."
1: Uh-huh.
0: You, Like, almost can't touch me anymore. Yeah. And then it becomes about the fight. Like, they're both fighting for that child to survive. Right. I actually just touched my stomach. You did. You have to It's weirding me out. Oh. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not. I
2: thought the baby cam was really cool because insofar as you see pregnant people in film and TV all the time, I rarely... for lack of a better word, I rarely conceive of it as a living child in there because you never know what state everything is in. And of course, uh, with the discourses around abortion now, where life starts and ends is like a murky question that I, you know, that I don't impose on people when I look at them. But this baby cam forces you to think of this baby as like a third lead in this Mm -hmm. crazy triangle because we see it again and again and especially as all the trauma that's going around uh, particularly sarah's body
0: Mm -hmm. like she's beat the fuck up in this movie and it's all almost around her body Uh um but except for her stomach except towards the very end right yeah and it's creepy
2: it is creepy it's gruesome
0: but we like to talk about the way Western society operates in this podcast, as Uh I'm sure you've noticed. And I think there is something to be said for the purification of motherhood.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Uh
0: Motherhood is like this... Beautific time where you are, you know, gestating this child, but you're also resplendent and you're glowy and you eat pickles. And it's all very sanitized. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, for a lot of the women I know and in women I've heard speak about it, they want to, um, frankly, just pull the curtain back and away from this sanitization of motherhood. It's weird. It can be a little gross. You poop funny, apparently. Oh. You know, there's all, and each pregnancy can be really, really different. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, you know, I, I appreciate that this film, if it's going to deal with motherhood, is going to show like. You want to see a C-section mm. because, you know, when you get a C-section, you're numbed completely from, like, I guess the neck down. And, you know, there's a sheet drawn up, but it's like they cut you open. They remove your gut. They take out the baby and then put the guts back in. Oh. And then so your guts feel weird, apparently. I can understand, yeah. Right. I can imagine. And it's, it's all very... Traumatic, and you know there are so many women who have PTSD from traumatic pregnancies and traumatic births Mm -hmm. that don't always get talked about. Right. So I think this
2: film is like, you want to see birth? Okay, let's show you birth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely tackling like the taboo of the reluctant mother, as we already mentioned, and the taboo (laughs) of the, the, the grossness of giving birth that's, you know, kind of put behind uh, a curtain for the most part. So I really appreciated how the film took pains to depict Sarah's rejection of motherhood, which in and of itself is taboo, but also... Sarah rejecting kind of the community of motherhood that tries to build around her, which I found hilarious. Like one of the earliest scenes, you've got that nurse who's really crass, right? And she's gross, and she's talking about the trauma. She's speaking all things unsaid, and Sarah is just not having it, calls her a twat. At least it was um, translated as a twat. In yeah, DVD, there's a couple that... different translations uh-huh. floating
0: around out there. Uh, so I've seen versions where Sarah calls the nurse uh, a twat or something similar, mm-hmm. uh, or she calls the people that the nurse is complaining about jerks. Oh. Um,
2: you know, there's a few different ways at this. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I thought it was really interesting because – There's this contradiction about pregnancy in society that women are treated differently when they're pregnant, and that's a fact. The vocabulary surrounding pregnancy is always so congratulatory. It's where you'll hear talk of miracles even among people who aren't religious in the slightest. And even to myself, I kind of facetiously – if a friend of mine is pregnant, I'll I'll call them a sacred vessel and I'll like (laughs) – Puff the pillows for them and stuff, like just to be facetious. But even culturally, like magazines love to shoot celebrities mm. in the nude when they're pregnant. Remember that was a big thing in the nineties. Demi Moore, Demi Moore, that was Cindy Crawford. It was such a big thing to, and it was almost like this big feminist statement to embrace the beauty of this that has been, you know, behind a curtain. And yet we often classify pregnancy as a disability, especially in the workplace. Many women take a hit in their career, be it with regard to wages, advancement, or outright job loss. We've got breastfeeding is still stigmatized, even though it's a very effective way to get a baby to stop crying, which in itself is stigmatized. And let me tell you, on that flight, who oh boy. <laughs> So yeah, I, I I definitely picked up on that and I appreciated how it brought these things to the forefront. I've got a girlfriend of mine who works in advertising and she was she was doing a study on Tampons and she was saying that like delivering her research findings to a boardroom full of men about Tampons still made them kind of blush and get uncomfortable. <laughs> so like women are revered for this biological contribution to society and punished for it at the very same time. And I think that's a lot of what's going on in this film. Yeah, and something that we've
0: talked about, I don't think we've talked about this book yet on the podcast proper, though we did do a giveaway for it, and there was a, we did an interview in our newsletter with the author, Sadie Doyle. Yes. And she came out with a brilliant book this year called Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, um, and it's a brilliant, brilliant book. It's very, very good. It's very good. Um, I say brilliant, Andrea says very good.
2: Why would you do that <laughs> we
0: We just have different ways of being effusive it 's
2: very brilliant
0: it 's very brilliant good it 's very good brilliant so so this book is kind of a masterwork in talking about female monstrosity and why and how women are viewed as monsters within society and she mm-hmm. taps into a lot of different things uh, horror movies, true crime fairy tales. It's all in there, and she does a really brilliant job of of kind of cutting through the noise and creating a really interesting narrative uh, that's very readable and very funny. Now, in her final section in the the book, which is about mothers, Mm -hmm. um, she situates motherhood in terms of a kind of Western cultural view and motherhood and birth as the kind of dawn of female monstrosity. Mm. And that is because women hold the power for human life, mm-hmm. and that power can be very terrifying, uh-huh. especially to men who want to control uh-huh. and who want to be in power. So, some of them do. And some of them do. Um, you know, you look at all of the kind of, um, you know, pro-life activism that happens mm-hmm. and it's it's fucking scary and so the fact that women hold this power and we have to continually fight for our autonomy mm-hmm. to make these decisions for ourselves and oftentimes we have succeeded in being able to make these decisions for ourselves that's very scary to a lot of people it's it's a power that cis men lack mm-hmm. It's, it's, like, the biggest thing they lack. They cannot reproduce. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, you need, um, you know, a cis man to help the baby along. But, you know, after that, it's, it's up to the woman. Mm-hmm. And so we are the bearers of power. We are the threshold yeah. of, of human life.
2: Yeah, and I think that, like, as an anxiety that's as prescient as it was in 2007, as it was, like, hearkening way back to Black Christmas Speaking of Christmas time of year, you've got uh, Olivia Hussey's boyfriend just being like, well, my baby, too. And, you know, she Mm -hmm. flexed. And that was in the 70s. And this is, what, 30 years later. Yeah. And I think there is some of the beautification
0: of motherhood that we were talking about is very... It's very traditionally feminine Mm -hmm. in that perfect viewpoint of, you know, a beautiful pregnancy with a glowing mother who does all of this stuff. It is very traditionally feminine. Mm. And I think that can be seen as a desire to create this kind of subservient narrative Mm -hmm. where you are to be protected, you are to be cared for, and you are... um, taken care of mm-hmm. and I think we all you know know through society and the impediments to getting access to health care to getting good treatment to um, you know God forbid your child has a problem once they're born um, it's it's kind of to keep everyone status quo mm-hmm. and not to talk about you know uh, birth is traumatic birth is scary or birth can be okay mm-hmm. you know we I, and I've seen more and more women who've given birth um, Have those dialogues and and have them. And I think that's actually quite empowering. Yeah. You know, sharing stories, being authentic and saying, I love my kid,
2: but this was fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and with the dawn of the internet, I imagine there's more resources than ever for people to connect. Yeah. Um, each of my sisters has three children, and I remember one of them, she's always posting on Facebook about, oh, like, hey, two of my kids were crying and the other one was screaming and people were glaring at me, and where is the sisterhood? Where is the sisterhood of mothers? So I think insofar as there is, like, you know, an understanding that we all have this power and we all share it, the fact that some of us choose not to and not to live that way, it's not... It can't be assumed across the board anymore, and uh, that's a thing. It can also be very triggering for those who have lost pregnancies or are unable to conceive. Yeah. Um,
0: well, this might be a good point to talk about one of the most famous mothers in the world. <laughs> You're a Catholic. You're a lapsed Catholic. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
2: She's popular. She's pretty popular. She's popular where I just came from. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. Uh, Andrea was in Mexico, Mm -hmm. FYI. She had a vacation, and it was the festival of the Guadalupe, Mm. which is basically seven days straight of party, 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 parades, 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 and like this song on repeat. That's like, it was endless. I fucking loved it. (laughs) (laughs) All right.
0: So the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary. Um, I think it's kind of hard to talk about inside and not generate some of the references to Virgin Mary um, mm-hmm. that are happening within this film. I think they stem from the fact that uh, the baby's father, Sarah's partner, is no longer with us. Uh-huh. He kind of appears briefly as a ghostly figure. And the birth of a child at... Christmas right um, the child is held in extremely high importance mm-hmm. um, by people around her mm-hmm. um, but she feels kind of distant from it. It was something that kind of almost happened to her. In, in a strange way, she feel again it 's this disassociative thing that she seems to be going through in it whether it 's PTSD from the accident, straight up grief, a combination mm-hmm. um, you know there 's a lot of things at play, and of course, uh, the Virgin Mary was the mother of Jesus and therefore the mother of God, and the supernatural events that have offered protection over the centuries since this was supposed to have happened um have been attributed to her she's seen as a protector she's Uh seen as a caregiver she's seen as the perfect mother Uh, i was not raised in religion so from my understanding angel came to her and was like hey you're gonna have this baby don't worry about it Mm. it's gonna be the most important baby in the world marry that guy and just be like cool with it and she was like oh okay great
2: that sounds fine. I will do God's will. Yes, was that about right? Well, I, yes, and oh, uh, I was uh, I was looking this up because I, I I was wondering to myself if Mary had actually given consent. And, you know, that's something that we didn't really cover in Sunday school. We definitely uh, covered the fact that, you know, she was a mother to Jesus, but she also had to be pure. And how can you be a mother and pure at the same time? Well, Immaculate Conception is what we came up with for that little loophole. So I looked it up, and I was gobsmacked to find a story that happened right here in Toronto in 2011. Apparently, a bunch of people posted signs around a Youth for Christ chapter that said, God raped Mary. And, yeah, so I read this blog post that was just like, well, that's just not true. Uh, Obviously, many Christian groups were deeply offended by this, and they fought back in a a variety of ways. It's a pretty hilarious slap fight, if if, if you're into this, if you want to look it up. Um, But apparently, Mary was told by an angel that this would be happening, and she said, okay. Not in so many words. What she actually said was, let it be, but it's not as though she was given an option, per se. Anyway, For me, what I take away from that, the birth of Christ obviously parallels that the baby is the focus of the story. As you say, the baby is the object of desire for the woman, the goal of protection for Sarah, and arguably everyone else who walks in the door. And many people do walk in the door. It's another thing about this film is for how simple and straightforward its conceit is, the twists and turns and close calls, and body count, frankly, is just astonishing.
0: Yeah. Mari and Bustillo created... A really great concept. Yeah. If you can nail that concept and get a bit of, like,
2: thinking behind it. You're off to the races. Mm -hmm. And I think another great card that they played was Beatrice Dahl. And they talk about that in that special featurette Mm -hmm. that they could not fucking believe it. She was notoriously choosy about her roles. And so for her to take on this hyper-violent, these newcomers, these young filmmakers for something really hyper-violent, she signed up and she really uh, made the role her own and came up with a lot of what the woman was on screen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and Beatrice Dahl is a really um, incredible actress and uh, a very popular actress, despite her being choosy. She's very in demand. Mm. Uh, She's actually on the cover of my book. Uh, Right. uh, Yeah, Uh, that is her in another uh, film that I would deem in the realm of New French Extremity, which is Trouble Every Day, Mm -hmm. which is a great film if you haven't seen it. And she has this presence. Mm -hmm. She is like... Remember when Angelina pretended to be bad- badass for, like, a year or two? Which time? Um, like around Billy Bob. Oh, I was The of Blood. <laughs> the Billy Bob era. <laughs> it's like Beatrice Dahl, it was just like, I don't have to pretend. I don't have, this isn't a face. Mm-hmm. This isn't anything else. I'm not going to become St. Beatrice after. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm just, a, I'm just me. Yeah. Just going to do me don't worry about
2: mm-hmm.
0: it um, so if you can uh, watch any of her other work it's, it's fucking great yeah. she's very cool I agree and and she gives a lot of heft to this performance and I think um, it, it's interesting because Alison uh, Paradis who, uh, who plays Sarah is very she has to be subdued mm-hmm. she has to be so subdued and it's a tricky part to do and she's frankly unlikable in several ways because she just She's got this child, and you're not used to seeing a mother on screen or mm-hmm. um, a soon-to-be mother who's like, fuck, whatever, <laughs> whatever. I just, ugh, everyone like me alone. Yeah, yeah. And so she's doing a lot of stuff that I think is really really hard to do and again that's just giving it weight and this kind of vague annoyance. But then when shit starts going down yeah. she brings this incredible amount of energy to the performance. Yeah. And to, have to sustain that, um I was reading that this film was shot in sequence. Yes. Which I think you would have to do mm-hmm. for something like this, especially for first time directors, if you're doing it on low budget, for the amount of gore yeah. that is going on throughout this film Uh I mean you know it's not part of the new French extremity movement for nothing you have um, people getting stabbed blown up shot stabbed in the Mm -hmm. neck with all kinds of household implements Mm -hmm. um all very it, domestic implements, I might add. Very domestic implements, and I, and I think it's um, very interesting. The one kind of moment that's very surreal, which is Sarah's dream,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, right towards the beginning of the film. And I don't know if you have an interpretation of it, but um, you know, Sarah's kind of going to sleep. She's in her rocking chair, and then all of a sudden, she starts, you know, becoming sick, and you see something boiling up under her throat, mm-hmm. and then she starts just starts vomiting milk, mm-hmm. and it's. Really weird. It, it's very surreal for the amount of reality this film has. And, and to me, it was just the aggressiveness of showing um, lactation.
1: Because,
0: oh. again, that's something we don't often talk about. Like, apparently, like, I'm touching my boobs. Yeah, but you <laughs> apparently, when you lactate, or, you know, after you've had a child, uh-huh. um, you, you just lactate all the time sometimes. Okay. And then you just spouty milk. Oh. Um, so I think there was something else about, you know, pulling back this kind of geyser of milk that your body can produce, mm. um,
2: which I think is really, like, fucking strange and almost brave to show. Totally. It's something that uh, that I can imagine her having anxiety about. Primarily because she's pushing everyone away. She's pushing her own mother away. Like, the people who would maybe impart that advice and be like, oh, here's what's coming. Yeah. I just want to hear it. And if she's rejecting, not rejecting, but if she's not super keen on maybe
0: the baby and the birth and everything, Uh it's the fact that it is this thing she cannot avoid. Right. It's fucking coming. Yeah. It's like the milk will come in, all of this stuff is going to start happening, and then she just starts throwing it up. Yeah. And that's when she wakes up in a fear. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Gross. 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 Awesome and gross. I think it was really taxing on both actresses. I mean, in the special features, they were showing all the prosthesis, all the prosthetics they had to make on these women, the molds and stuff. And to be covered in blood for hours and hours straight, it's sticky and it's taxing. Yeah. Not that I would know.
0: No? No, I don't think so. (laughs) Except for that one period.
2: Oh. Ooh. Ooh. Yay. Yay. So another detail I picked up on this film that I wasn't sure what to do with because I wasn't sure if I wanted to ascribe it to Beatrice Dahl or not was her wardrobe mm. her outfit is kind of strange I remember I was watching it and I was like she's just on her way to a Renaissance fair <laughs> like it has these this long dress with these bell sleeves and this kind of corset-y like over thing over top it It made me feel like it was some kind of horrific throwback to a midwife or a doula or, like, just Mm -hmm. kind of like this old form of midwifery. And so that got me thinking about uh, midwifery in general, and uh, I pulled up some things. So um, a midwife, just to clarify terms, is a medical professional— trained similarly to a nurse and they're trained to recognize variations from normal labor they can deal with some deviations in a non-intrusive manner they may refer to a physician if something is out of their purview but they're they're also trained to support a pregnancy stage and the postpartum period like counseling and stuff like mm. that um And midwifery has been around for as long as babies have been born. There are references to it in ancient Greek and Roman texts, as well as the Bible. And knowledge of this craft was passed between women as apprentices, practiced along elders— And then 1484 came around, the good old Malleus Maleficarum. Oh, yeah. I think we've talked about on this podcast, which declared that midwives were the most dangerous sort of witches because they preyed on new families. And so that's when baby snatching kind of became a trait of the witch, which we see, you know, in fairy tales such as Hansel and Gretel. Right. And also in The Witch, uh, Robert Eggers' movie. Is that why he made us stop
0: stealing babies?
2: That's why I made us stop? That's why I want to start. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to get that newborn baby power. (laughs) So what I found was that in 1902, Great Britain set up a central midwives board to train midwives, which gave them a sense of professionalism that's become more common in Europe. But in the U.S., American physicians waged war against the practice of midwifery, basically to keep childbirth in the medical institution and therefore in the hands of men. And it gave rise to the idea that childbirth should only occur in the hospital under professional care. And the West slowly opened up to midwifery once more in the 1960s and 70s, because there was kind of the hippie countercultural movement toward natural living and natural childbirth. And midwifery was illegal in Canada until the 90s. What? You believe that? No. In 1981, a midwife in British Columbia was charged with practicing without a license. And now there are bachelor degrees in midwifery and bodies to regulate who gets to use the title registered midwife. So I thought all of that was very interesting. And I also learned what a doula was. Okay. What's a doula in distinction to a midwife? A doula, uh, it's mostly a support role. They're not considered medical professionals at all. They can't administer medication or give medical advice, but their whole thing is to make clients feel safe, comfortable, and informed. And informed Uh, studies showed them to be of great value to their clients, and I learned of the existence of something called a full-spectrum doula, and a full-spectrum doula provides support for all reproductive experiences, including abortion, stillbirth, queer family planning, adoption, et cetera. They often identify as activists, and they fight for the human rights of their clients. That's awesome. I know. Hmm. I thought so, too. That's very cool. Well, and I I think there is something
0: very interesting in this film about the um, almost natural instinct both women have towards the preservation of life. Mm. Um, Like, one of my favorite slash moments I can never watch in this film is when Sarah gives herself a tracheotomy. Oh, my God. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen this film, between my love of it, between writing a book where I had to write about it, between doing it on the podcast – Maybe just under ten times, let's Mm -hmm. say. Each Mm -hmm. fucking time. I'm like, ah! It is so fucking intense. Mm -hmm. Maybe we would have the presence of mind to do that. I don't know if I'd have to be pregnant to do that.
2: Um, Well, certainly if you were dying and you were choking on your own blood, maybe you'd stab yourself in the throat. I don't know that that would work. And that is actually the second most harrowing tracheotomy I've seen in cinema. (laughs) was the first. Um, the Haunting of Julia. Did you ever see that? Oh, yeah! yeah. That yeah, one's Yeah, bad.
0: yeah, That one was also good. It's oh, bad.
2: Um, and then, again, this
0: kind of instinct where you know, as um, Sarah's in labor, she's clearly, you know, dealing with massive body trauma mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and the woman knows that it's like, okay, we just cut it open. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's what she was trying to do when Sarah was sleeping with the scissors. Yes. You know, there. I mean, I mean, I I wouldn't have done it when she was just sleeping. Mm I mean, she she would have woken up. Um, But I think there is something to be said for the kind of instinct that these women have for the preservation of life. You know, for Sarah, it was preservation of herself with the tracheotomy. Mm -hmm. And the one point she really stops the woman in her tracks is when she holds um, the object up to her stomach, like she's going to stab it. Yeah. And then the woman, the life she wants to preserve is the child's. Right. Because that's... Who she sees that she needs, and it's deserving of her. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about the di- the distinction, and I think there is a lot of distinction between, you know, men are knowledge based, and women are based in instinct. Mm-hmm. And all right, fuck it,
2: women know how to do this. Right, game on. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see the remake uh, we were discussing earlier. I didn't see the 2016 remake, but I did read up on the ending, and it is a different Ooh. ending. Ooh. Can you shall spoil I divulge it? it? Yeah, if you I don't, don't mind. Watch it. Yeah, I can. Uh, basically, it's it's the same film, except it takes place in suburban Chicago. Mm-hmm. Chicago riots, you know, and uh, the woman dies saving Sarah from drowning. Oh. Yeah, they both wind up in the pool and under a cover, so they're both going to die, but uh, the woman saves Sarah, and Sarah survives and gives birth in the pool. Oh, so it's kind of like that Martyrs remake ending. Yes. Why do we do that? And by we, I mean the West, even though that was a Spanish director. I don't know.
0: Um, I I think there is, if you're going to remake a film that is beloved among, um, you know, hardcore horror fans... Mm-hmm. Y- there's a sense that you need to change it. I guess. You need to do something different to yeah. it. Um, to keep it interesting. To keep it interesting. Otherwise, you've got Gus Vance's Psycho. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's also... The brilliance of these films is how... I don't know if they're nihilistic so much as they are deeply complicated. Mm. And I think so many people have different readings of it. Like, yeah. you there listening could be like, that's a fucked up thing to say... A wrong was righted mm. at the end of Inside. But that's certainly my takeaway from it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's multiple interpretations you can have of the emotional outcome of this film. Mm-hmm. Just as, like you could with Martyrs or Calvair or uh, High Tension. You know, there's there's different heroes and villains and it depends on who you are
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, to view that. And I think these films are really challenging in that mm-hmm. way. And that's why I really like them. Yeah. I certainly is very sad that Sarah died, but... And, and truly, one of one of the creepiest scenes I've ever seen in cinema that just ugh, chills me to the bone every time I see it is the image of Beatrice Dahl badly scarred with a baby in her arms and that red light
1: mm-hmm.
0: shining down on her, like, gently rocking in the chair. It just – it fills me with such fear
1: mm-hmm.
0: that I can't even explain it. Like, it, it just – that's such a
2: personal thing for me. Mm-hmm. It just scares me. I can't explain it. Um, it's, it's like a chilling subversion of like, you know, you know, motherhood, yeah. that's such a sweet moment. And mothers are so supposed to be so nurturing. And insofar as we have seen her completely unhinged, we've seen her capable of terrible acts mm-hmm. to also see that side of her, I think is to know that that duality can yeah. exist in a person there. She, cause you see this like
0: moment of like, she lost everything. Yeah. She lost everything, and then she got the thing she wanted at this incredible cost Mm -hmm. that is... But I certainly think, you know, if we want to talk about this film in terms of the horror genre, and and certainly um, Mowry and uh, Bustillo have talked about, and and many other directors have talked about this, how France doesn't have the strongest tradition of horror films. Um, It it has an incredible cinematic history. Mm -hmm. It has made some great horror films, some of which we've talked about with Eyes Without a Face. There's also the films of Jean Rollet. Um, You know, it has done stuff. It's not to say it hasn't done horror, but... Cinema in France is seen as a high art form. Uh-huh. It's not like goofy entertainment. It's not Marvel movies. It is important cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, the French were, you know, t- t- created the technology, you know, with the Lumiere brothers. So there is a huge significance to this. So to do something like horror is seen as kind of quote-unquote low and tawdry and base. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for them as horror fans who wanted to make a horror film, it was a bit of a struggle. It took a while. You know, they had to get financing, pull it together, and then they made this kind of bombastic film, which didn't do very well in France. Mm -hmm. It did well like all around France. Mm -hmm. It found its horror audience through TIFF, I think, you know, and and Dimension Extreme, and it got released. It found that audience. Um, But I think it also pays You know, subtle homage to um, so many different horror themes that have precipitated it. So for me, I don't know, maybe it's different for you. I would say that this film is in a narrative construct very much indebted to the home invasion. Sure, yeah. Uh, subgenre, genre um, And I think the home invasion genre is really different because it keeps coming back. It's a great tried-and-true trope. Um, and I think each time it comes about, each time you see a home invasion film, it speaks to the kind of current fears mm. or the sp- specific fears that the filmmakers want to address. So um, you look at something from um, anything from like Straw Dogs to The Purge. Mm. Not... There is a similarity between them, but I think their politics are um, grappling with very different things. Totally. So for me, when I think of Inside, I see the child as the objective, mm-hmm. this protection of this nuclear family, uh, which both women are, are in some way struggling for. Um, you know, Sarah's grieving for the loss of her. She's about to give birth to this child, which was supposed to cement this nuclear family, possibly in her mind. Mm-hmm. And the woman is trying to reclaim the child that she lost mm-hmm. because of the accident. Um, and I think it also, because of this film and the way it's structured with the riots going on in the background, mm-hmm. it speaks to the incredible amount of, frankly, white privilege that we're, we're constantly talking about, constantly dealing with, and it does so in a way that feels almost seamless. Mm-hmm. And that's, for me, what kind of puts this film above many others. And, and essentially, I think for me, this home invasion film stems very much from the fact that... Riots were happening in France. They were happening in Paris. It was an incredibly scary time in France, um, you know, in the mid to late 2000s. And white people would just take to their homes and fucking hide out. Again, similar to the purge in that way, they were just like, shut it down, lock it down. Mm -hmm. It's fucking empty. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. We can be safe and that's fine. It was a very self-serving kind of protectivity. And so I think to talk about the riots a little bit that are alluded to throughout the film, um, we don't see them. But, again, the police are stopping by. Eventually they bring one of the um, people they arrest from the riots uh-huh. into the home who meets a very grisly fate. Yeah. Um, is the, There are two presidencies that we need to talk about in France. And okay. one is Jacques Chirac, who uh, was in power from May 1995 to May 2007. He's often considered one of the most popular presidents of the Fifth Republic. He was certainly around for a long time. And he won his second term in 2002 with an 82% vote uh, for him against uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen. And Le Pen was an extreme far-right evil fuck. Okay. And his daughter is now still in politics in France and is trying to lead this kind of right-wing nationalist party. Again, it's very fucking scary. Like, start Googling the name Le Pen and you will see some evil shit. So uh, Chirac was kind of uh, a right of center towards right-wing conservative. Uh But very, like, he didn't do a whole hell of a lot. He just kind of kept the status quo. Um, And he he opposed the war in Iraq, but he didn't do a lot for his people. Uh-huh. And often he was criticized, uh, and he was criticized for this notion of the French malaise, uh-huh. uh, this kind of depression which settled over France during his um, uh, period in office. And it was this feeling that the French or the quote-unquote typical white French person uh-huh. um, was becoming obsolete, Um, There was a mass unemployment crisis, uh, a crisis of the French identity, and anxiety around nationalism and globalization.
2: That sounds so familiar. It sounds so fucking familiar. It's almost as if
0: this plays out again and again. Short of putting up fucking walls, there was a lot of fear and a lot of panic and Essentially, um, so in Paris, you know, you've got this and, – and this is, again, why I find um, New French Extremity so fascinating because we think of Paris and we think of the City of Lights and the City of Romance, Romance and yeah. all of these, you know, things like I'm going to go to Paris and I'm going to go drink a glass of wine where Ernest Hemingway drank a glass of wine yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and all of these beautiful things that I'm going to go do, whereas there is um, – a lot of segregation, yeah. and that takes place in uh, mainly around the Paris suburbs, okay. and uh, they're called the banlieues, and um, there's many of them. They host a huge amount of the population uh, in and around Paris. And they often um, are home to a lot of immigrant families. Um, But there's also a lot of um, Arab communities, a lot of African communities Mm. um, who are being mistreated. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do not receive the kind of government support they need. They do not receive the kind of infrastructure they need. And so they are being oppressed. And this all came to a head in 2005. And this is a timeline I kind of paralleled and consulted with a BBC article, which we'll post so you can see the full timeline. So on October 25th, uh, 2005, the The then interior minister, Nicolas Sarkozy, was hit with stones and bottles uh, during a visit to the Paris suburb of Argentoy. And he went because he wanted to see how the new measures he had enacted along with the rest of the government for protection and Uh to maintain order were working out. Um, Not so good. Not so good um, because he's an asshole. He said, after that incident, the neighborhood should be cleaned with a power hose. Wow. And then he said some other really shitty stuff that I won't get into. And then on October 27th, Two teens, uh, Zayed Banai and uh, Brahma Torvo, uh, were electrocuted and died when they climbed into an unsafe area to hide from police in another suburb. Uh Uh, News of these deaths uh, spread really quickly and resulted in riots from large African and Arab communities nearby um, who live in those suburbs Mm -hmm. and who knew those kids and knew kids just like them. Uh, On the first night, 15 vehicles were destroyed. There were mass arrests violence, and the unrest grew. It grew overnight and night and night. And Chirac during this period was incredibly silent. He was kind of coming out, but also not saying very much. Meanwhile, Sarkozy pledged a zero tolerance policy in the weeks following and basically enacted martial law Mm. in Paris and within the suburbs, resulting in even more violence, massive arrests. And once the riot police and the martial law was enacted, it all got shut down very quickly. Mm-hmm. The first incidents kind of happened around October 27th. And then on November 14th, Chirac's first major speech since the violence erupted, and he pledged to create more opportunities for young people. Okay. Okay. That's it. End end of that. Don't worry about it. No, it was great. It was super cool. They created um, a ton of opportunities. They redid all the structures for the Paris suburbs. Don't worry. JK, I'm lying. They did not do that. Um, And shortly thereafter, in 2007, uh, Chirac was voted out of office and Sarkozy was elected to president. Um, And he was president until 2012. And so he was elected um, in May Mm -hmm. uh, 2007. And so in November 2007... At the end of the month, uh, another two teens from these Paris suburbs died after their motorcycle collided with a police vehicle. Mm -hmm. Now, there are conflicting reports of whether these two teens were driving recklessly Mm -hmm. or whether the police vehicle swerved to hit them, killing them. Um, This resulted in another night of rioting. And on the second night of rioting, Sarkozy enacted, again, the riot police, Uh again, shutting everything down very quickly. Uh, And Sarkozy was a real piece of work. He's a real piece of work. He was probably more right-wing. He was definitely more right-wing than Chirac. Uh, Not as right-wing as Le Pen, but he was just a piece of shit. And did not a lot of good things um, to help the people who needed help Mm -hmm. and to create support systems for those who needed it. Um, So he was eventually voted out of office in uh, 2012. And then they've kind of found their way to more centralist governments, and, yeah. you know, now we have uh, Emmanuel Macron, who is in power. Okay. And he's, he's kind of like Justin Trudeau.
1: Okay.
0: You know? Nice to look at? Eh, he's short, but he's okay to look at. But he... um He's, again, left with a lot of centrist politics. Um, And there's still a lot of, you know, unrest and a lot of issues within those communities because Mm -hmm. they are not being served properly. Mm -hmm. And I think this film serves to amplify um, the kind of violence and trauma that is happening um, on the outskirts of Paris and even within the city a little bit and how, um, you know, Sarah has this privilege of, of hiding within her home mm-hmm. um, you know she can retreat from everything mm-hmm. and these people cannot okay. so um, you know why I, I don't think the film is necessarily overtly about these themes I think their inclusion of it um, showed that Maori and uh, Bustillo who were were Grappling mm-hmm. with them, they were grappling with them as as artists and as mm-hmm. filmmakers, young artists, yeah. and and they needed to include it because to not have included it would have misrepresented France. That's right. And you know whether you're creating low art or high art, you have to represent what you're seeing around you. Yeah, huh?
2: Interesting. Because yeah, I mean it exists. I wouldn't say it's central to the plot, but it does uh, it does kind of come in and out seamlessly enough mm-hmm. that uh, that as to be significant and you're right it situates it as very French of the moment.
0: Yeah, and I think to if if we didn't have that angle I don't think this film would be certainly as important and as resonant as I see it. Mm. I think it, you know, we as as artists as as white artists, mm-hmm. you know, We owe it to ourselves to call out the shit we see, Mm -hmm. um, whether overtly or ingrain it in some kind of storytelling. Right. Um, So maybe maybe that's something you guys picked up on when you were watching it. Maybe it's something you're thinking about now or you're like, fuck off. Politics has nothing to do with horror. Who knows? Who knows? But for me, I I think um, there's a lot of other films uh, that came out of France that have to do with this kind of um, – issues that really are the, the French are dealing with and yeah. have been dealing with for a long time.
2: Yep. For more on that, read my book. <laughs> and what is horror if not a great, big, distorted mirror, right? I mean, I believe that. Yeah. So to wrap up, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, this is also an anniversary episode. Oh, yeah. It's an anniversary of Jesus's birth. And also the Faculty of Horror oh, podcast. God. This is year seven folks i can't even believe the words coming out my mouth seven years ago we sat in my living room with a usb mic and made our very first episode black christmas versus
0: (laughs) halloween Halloween. and we were
2: so cute and listening to that i cringe but it also warms my heart that we stuck to it
0: Seven years later. Uh, remember when I got you into this podcast when I said we could just do
2: like six episodes yeah. and yeah. see how it goes? Just a mini-series and see how it goes. It's been <laughs> amazing. It's been incredible. It's been such a journey. And uh, the last couple of years in particular, last year with launching the Patreon, has been so wonderful and amazing. Going to Salem has been so wonderful and amazing. So while we celebrate the holiday, let's also celebrate you guys because holy shit. Seven years of the faculty of horror is no fucking joke. Yeah, I I think, you know, so many of you have been with us for such a long
0: time, and we've gotten to talk to you, and we've gotten to know you, Uh you've gotten to see us, um, you've you've come by to see the Rue Morgue Manor, like, it's really cool, we've got a little community going on, and we're both very, very protective of all of you, and um, so it is the holidays, I'm very grateful to be spending a bit of it with Andrea, Um, I hope you all take a bit of time out to, uh, you know, spend it with people you care about, or do something really good uh, for yourself, or Uh someone else, else and um you know when when a strange french woman no matter how attractive she is comes knocking on your door and says your husband's dead you say no or non
1: non
2: non non. non merci non merci so, no homework for you guys over the holidays because January we're going to be back with our year in review episode, as is custom.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I use this time, I use the time off from my work uh, to catch up on a lot of films. Me so too. I have a
2: lot of catching oh my God, up. I have so do. much
0: catching up to do. Yeah. But it's really fun. So, um, you know, watch all the films you're meaning to watch if you've got the time. Um, I don't know, dare I spring this on you, Andrea, now? Should, should the January episode also include our, you know, Best of the decade?
2: Perhaps. 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 Definitely some bloopers. Mayhap some belches. Ooh. <laughs> we'll see. Well, um,
0: it's it's been a great seven years. Um... I'm so thrilled we got to talk about inside. This movie yeah. fucks me up. And it's it's kind of in my top five ever of horror. Really? You know, to be fair, I do alternate between inside or martyrs, depending yeah. on how existential I'm feeling on okay. the day. Okay. But right now it's inside. All right.
2: Well, yeah. let's roll with that. So until the year 2020, guys, office hours are closed.